Hello and welcome. You are listening to Resiliency, a podcast that takes an inside look at enhancing the vitality and resilience of field workers. From experts in member care to frontline field workers, our guests will bring you their experience, their lessons learned, and always something practical you can take away and use to increase your resiliency in cross-cultural life and ministry. Co-hosts Silas West and Steve Finley are just one part of an ever-growing and strengthening net of member care in the Antioch movement. They want to see Matthew 24, 14 happen and do everything they can to help field workers have the kind of resilience that enables them to make it for the long haul. Well, listeners, we are really excited today to have Bob Watson, the clinical director at Alongside, on the show today to talk about uh, grief and loss. And so, Bob, welcome to Resiliency. Thanks so much, Silas. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Why don't you just uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay. Professionally, I'm a clinical psychologist. And as you mentioned, I'm the director of counseling at Alongside, which is a retreat-based counseling center specifically for cross-cultural workers and also people in domestic ministry. And it's based in Southwest Michigan. And uh, professionally, I've worked in a a number of different settings. I've worked in faith-based behavioral health care. I was graduate faculty preparing Christian psychologists for a decade. I've worked as an organizational leadership development consultant. I've been in private practice. And uh, I've also done extensive cross-cultural work myself. Personally, I'm married to another psychologist who is a full-time professor and, uh, and we have um, two adult children, and uh, I think they've turned out okay, considering they have two shrinks for parents, but um, you, you could pray for them anyways. Um, and, uh, and then finally, um, I would say about myself, you know, in terms of uh, my capital V vocation, and, and my, my uh, mission is that I'm called to build for the kingdom by serving the church to become more healthy and more mature and more whole. Um, in my role as clinical psychologist. Mm. Love that. That's awesome. I'm not sure what, what we can say about how, how well your kids are, but I know mine always tells me after I have a conversation with them, he asked me, are you going to charge me for this? <laughs> yeah. Well, Bob, grief and loss is the subject that we've asked you to talk about. It's, it's not exactly one of the most cheerful subjects in the world. In fact, I, I find that people tend to try to avoid talking about it as much as they can. How is it that this has become one of your sweet spots as a therapist? Yeah, that's a super good question. And actually, I grew up in a family that was masterful at avoiding dealing with talking about loss. And I grew up in a family, probably like many of us, that had many different kinds of losses by immigration and illness and divorce and mental illness, some trauma. And they worked really hard as I look at the different you know, streams that came together and formed my family of origin. They worked really hard to avoid them. So I remember hearing that my, my little Greek grandmother who immigrated uh, in the early 20th century would tell her children when they were young, don't cry, don't cry, it will make you sick. Which is a really interesting to think about that now as a psychologist who, with whom, I, when I am with people um, who are, have experienced loss, I very much encourage them to bring their real feelings out on the table. And so, so, so that's kind of the context out of which I come. 
I'm a child of divorce myself, and I struggled as a young adult with the layers of loss that come along with that. Mm. Early on, as a a college student and right afterwards, I thought I would be a a cross-cultural worker uh, as my profession. And um, in the cross-cultural context in in the Western Pacific, um, I encountered so many wounds in the young people that I worked with that I, with the woman that I would later marry, felt this sense of calling to enter the counseling profession to help deal with those wounds so that people could really hear the good news. Mm. And, and of course, at another level, I entered that counseling profession because I was looking for healing as well of my own wounds. So um, o- over many years, almost 30 years now of working with people, both lay people and people in ministry, th- those years of working with people have really brought this question and issue of grief and loss and mourning to the surface and pr- prioritized it for me. In fact, over the past decade, I partnered with uh, the grief support ministry of a very large Midwestern church um, as kind of their mental health professional consultant and resource person. And I traveled many times to Southern and Central Africa to train indigenous church leaders to build and, and sustain their own grief support ministries. So this is really near and dear to my heart, and it's something that I feel called to give away what, what you know, folks who have training like ours and our understanding about the, a human being's response to loss, to give away that knowledge to the church so he, it can minister more effectively to people who have gone through such things. And now as the director of counseling and alongside, I have the privilege really of walking with cross-cultural workers and people in domestic ministry who come to our program, many of whom, as you know, have experienced significant losses. Mm-hmm. And that really brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you is how have you seen grief and loss affecting this population of, of cross-cultural and global workers? Well, you, you know, Silas, anyone who has lived and worked cross-culturally knows that there are significant losses baked into doing this type of ministry. So, for example, all the leavings and all the new beginnings, living with change, living with ambiguity and unfamiliarity at regular intervals as people move to different places and are, are coming and going, you know, back to their passport country and then back to the, to the field regular doses of disillusionment on many levels that have to be integrated into a person's um, mind and heart as they encounter things that you just don't typically encounter if you stay in your passport country. You know that there's great relational churn for people who are particularly cross-cultural workers. People come and go from the life of a typical missionary, and, uh, and, and that there's a lot of loss with that. Tragically, some people experience truly traumatic experiences, and there's a great deal of loss associated with trauma. And then, and then finally, um, there are losses that have to do with having relatively less insulation from suffering in many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. When you go to a different place, you see things in our experience to suffering that we're just not accustomed to. Although the COVID-19 situation has certainly um, shaken that a bit for those of us from the West. Yeah, it's definitely leveled the playing field in some ways. Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine and I were recently talking about this whole COVID-19 global experience. And 
uh, all of the loss that surrounds it. And, you know, there's this obvious losses that we can put our finger on that, that uh, even before we started the, the recording that Steve was mentioning about, you know, people who are actually losing loved ones and experiencing that kind of loss, the loss of jobs, the loss of security that, that we see around there. But uh, there's also a lot of maybe less tangible loss, ambiguous loss. And I think maybe that's some of what you're also referring to, but you know, we can obviously see these big things that we need to, to grieve and to, to mourn. What can you tell us about this kind of ambiguous loss that seems to go under the radar? Yeah, this, this must be a God thing, Silas, because uh, as I was thinking about our time together, this very term came up in my mind. And um, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there's a psychologist named Pauline Boss who coined the term um, ambiguous loss. Pauline Boss is a well-known psychologist and researcher um, into, into loss. And she basically says this, there's two types of ambiguous losses. Of course, there's unambiguous losses, which you, you frame nicely, the things that are obvious that, that we lose. But then there are these other ambiguous losses. One occurs, the, the first type is when there's a physical absence with a psychological presence. So like, for example, um, situations where a loved one is physically missing or bodily gone. So the catastrophic examples would be um, kidnapping and missing bodies due to war, terrorism, ethnic cleansing, etc. Mm. More common examples of a physical ambiguous loss would be something like divorce or adoption or a loss of contact, like we're experiencing now with mm. family and friends. Um, so they're, they're still here but they're not physically with us. That's ambiguous loss number one. Ambiguous loss number two occurs when there's a psychological absence with a physical presence. So mm -hmm. a loved one is, is psychologically not here emotionally or, or cognitively, or they change because of something like uh, dementia or a traumatic brain injury, or they've had a stroke or addiction or something like that, a chronic mental illness. I'm actually going through that now with my mom who has uh, a, a relatively severe level of dementia. And mm -hmm. so while she, she, I know that the Lord holds her memories and I hold her memories for her at this point, she's unable to access many of them. And so how that feels to me is that while, while I, I can be in the same room with her, she is not there in some way. And that's mm -hmm. very painful. So that, that's the second type of ambiguous loss. So to your point now, I, I, it's interesting that you raised this. I've been thinking about it um, for the last several weeks. There are losses that are hidden in plain sight for those of us going through this, this COVID situation, COVID-19 situation. Some of us have experienced obvious losses, as you said, of job, of health, relationship, of life. As, as you mentioned, we heard about before uh, we jumped on this conversation but uh, as I've been talking to people, tell me if this rings true to you. There, there's a kind of an underlying sense of sadness and anxiety just at the edge of our awareness mm -hmm. that a lot of people yeah. are feeling, even though um, it's, not, it's not exactly clear what we're feeling sad about. And I have a hunch about that that I wanted to kind of lay out there. I think this has to do with a kind of psychological absence with physical presence, not necessarily of a person, but uh, I'll explain what I mean. So uh, I walk around my home and everything is as it's always been. Um, everything's in its right place and it's spring and it looks as though 
life is normal, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So uh, about 40 years ago, there was a psychologist named Daniel Levinson, and he was um, studying the normal life cycle development of, of adults. And his research led him to propose the idea of what he called a life structure. And life structure, as he understood it, is the underlying pattern or design of a person's life at any given time. So it's kind of like the connection between our, who, who we are as people, our own psychology, and the circumstance that we're in. So we kind of put together, um, as it were, we kind of build patterns and structure in our lives that um, we don't typically have to pay attention to. And that, that structure enables us to live out and our, our basic choices and our values helps us to adapt helps us to figure out what we're going to do from one hour to the next without really needing to think about it a whole lot. And I think part of what's happened is that that's in pieces for many of us. That basic life structure, the rhythm and the pattern of our life right now is, has been um, shaken, if not fractured. And all of us are feeling a sense of loss about that. And of course, mm-hmm. a sense of anxiety as well. Yeah, that does ring true. And it also sounds a lot like what people who first go to another country experience. Yes, absolutely. You you can't take your old life structure with you when you leave your passport country and you become a cross-cultural worker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, loss of control is one of the biggest bugs that bites people when they move cross-culturally is some, you know, that we've all found who work, you know, work in this, in this industry, as it were. Indeed. Yeah. Well, you know, our podcast is geared toward the topic of resiliency, which is why it's called resiliency. So how does this intentional facing of loss make us more resilient? I know we're talking about the, the effects of loss on us, but obviously then there's, a, there's an answer to this, and that would be some kind of intentionality toward it. How, how does that make us more resilient, assuming that it does? And uh, on the flip side, how would not facing it make us less resilient? Yeah, super good question. So uh, I'd, I'd start with this, Silas. I would say that how we handle the experience of loss and then the feelings of grief that are triggered by it predicts in a significant way resilience over time in ministry in general and particularly in missions. Hmm. So there, there are three aspects of this that I, that I have been thinking about that I wanted to share that I, I think have to do with the relationship between resilience and how we deal with loss and our feelings of grief. And the first one of those is um, that resilient people recognize that grief is the price of love. Hmm. Hmm. That there's no way around that the, the, the things that we love, it, at least um, on, on this side, of the world as it is now before we enter the new heaven and the new earth, where there'll be no more crying and tears. Uh, On this side of our experience, grief is the price of love. And so people who come to believe, accept and believe that are, um, are positioned both to love well and also to grieve well. The second, the second thing that I would say about the relationship between resilience and this topic of grief and loss is that rather than settle, settling for relief, resilient people learn to embrace their feelings of grief and they learn how to mourn well. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that, Bob. So uh, a little definition of terms. 
typically speaking, people um, use the word grief and mourning synonymously. I found it very helpful to separate them. This is kind of a technical thing, but um, I think it's very helpful to separate the two. So, so grief is our, our body and our mind and our spirit's reaction to loss, response to loss, any kind of loss, not just loss by, by the death of a loved one, but anything that we're separated from that we have an emotional attachment to. So, so grief is the emotional response, our whole body's response to loss. Mourning is the process by which we heal from that loss and the feelings of grief. Mm-hmm. So one of my, one of my spiritual heroes um, was a fourth century bishop named Athanasius. And Athanasius preached a, apparently preached a series of sermons in his role as bishop. And uh, I love the title of the, the series. It goes something like this. Whatever is not embraced cannot be redeemed. Mm. Mm which I think is not only um, amazing theology, but it's also really good psychology. <laughs> so so the, first, the first aspect that of um, dealing with um, when, when we lose something, when the feelings of grief are triggered, is to do what feels, in, to some extent, the opposite of what our instincts tell us to do. Our instincts tell us to avoid. Mm. What actually works best is that we embrace, we wrap our arms around metaphorically the grief that we're feeling. And, and um, that actually leads to the third thing I wanted to mention. So if I can kind of back my way into answering mm-hmm. your question about what do we do about this. The third thing I wanted to say is that resilient people become skilled at the process of mourning. And, and I'll, I'll talk for a moment about the process of mourning in just a minute. This is really important because learning to mourn well, number one, helps us to bond deeply and also to let go of people and things to which we're emotionally connected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, mourning well helps us to travel light in relation to past losses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you've had this experience or you know people that have um, un- unmourned losses, people who have a difficult time. My family is a perfect example of this. Unmourned losses and the stored up feelings of grief that accompany them get triggered by current losses. Mm-hmm. And it makes it more difficult to cope. So something in the present happens, I lose someone. And if I haven't dealt with my past losses that are in some way symbolically or literally connected with the present loss, then I've got I've, I've all this stuff stirred up inside me and it might feel kind of overwhelming. Resilient people become really good at, at the process of mourning. So they're taking off the layers, Bob, before they get too thick, huh? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Bob, would you, would you say that lament and mourning are, are, are they similar? Yeah, this is another moment where it's, it's remarkable because uh, I had been thinking about it and praying about the exact thing, talking, uh, talking about lament a little bit. Yes. So I think that, that in, in a general, in, in a, a broad sense, lament is um, the way that in, in ancient Jewish culture and then in some streams of Christian tradition, it is our way to process pain theologically and spiritually. So, of course, a sub, subcategory of that pain would be loss and mourning. Okay. So a third of the Psalms are, are laments, and they have a discernible structure. And I don't know if you guys have talked about this in your podcast, but 
uh, to lay that structure out for people, uh, for those of us in 21st century, you know, North America, whoever listens to the podcast, to reclaim that as a, as a God-given framework, structure for us to process our pain theologically and biblically is, is tremendously powerful. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and in, when, you, when you get a sense of what the structure biblically of lament is, then it becomes possible to write personal laments. And I want to con- commend to you a book written, um, I want to say, close to 20 years ago now by a woman who died recently. Her name is Ann Weems. And she wrote a book of personal laments after the death of an adult child. The, the name of the book is Psalms of Lament. There's certainly value in praying the Psalms. There's also value sometimes in actually, in a very personal way, laying out, pouring our heart out to God within the structure of lament. So on that subject, Bob, just as we're talking about how do we make this thing of, of grieving and mourning and lamenting, how do we make it productive? Where, where do, how do we continue to move towards health and wholeness coming out of so much loss and so much pain and trauma in our lives? So, so let me make a comment about the process. So if you open the hood of mourning, this is what you find underneath the hood, that, that when people mourn well, essentially what is happening is that they are, by, by thinking about the things that they don't want to think about, mm. you know, essentially what's happening is that a little piece at a time, they are disconnecting their hearts, the emotional bond with the person or the place or the life structure, or the job, or whatever it is, they're a little bit at a time disconnecting their heart from that thing which no longer exists. Mm -hmm. And they are then attaching their hearts to the memories of that person, that place, that job, that ministry, whatever it happens to be. So there's a transfer that's happening. So that's the process dimension of it. Mm -hmm. We, We, as we think about Um, the things that we don't want to think about, as we tell stories, as we look at pictures, as we listen to songs, as we touch items that remind us of uh, of that which has been lost, even though that's very painful to do. And, uh, you know, of course, sometimes it brings tears, also laughter too sometimes. Um, As we do that repeatedly, we disconnect the emotional bond from that which is lost and we attach them to our memories of them. And that's how, that's how mourning works. It's as if we get a piece of our heart back mm-hmm. that's been bound up in the lost thing. So attaching it to the memories brings health. Yes, exactly. Okay. And, it, and it enables us to move forward and, and with, with courage to be willing to attach again to new people, a new that's place, good. a yeah. new ministry. That's a new situation hmm, gives us courage. I love that, Bob. It gives us courage to risk again. Exactly. And that's what resilient people are like. That's what they do. Hmm, That's great. It sounds like similar to some of my work with people who are experiencing trauma, in in a sense, putting it into our storyline rather than in our current experience. That's another great way to say it. It becomes part of our narrative, part of our story. That's why um, at at wakes, people tell stories. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening. And and we laugh and we cry and um, we we tell, you know, uh, some some things are profound and poignant. Some are, are, are seem trivial, but they're all part of the 
the narrative that each one of us is weaving, putting this loss into its place. And, and again, the, the underlying dynamic of, of disconnecting painfully, disconnecting from that which is no longer here and attaching it to our memory so we can move forward. Really, we're not designed to do this in, in uh, isolation. We're designed to do it communally. Mm. So the question is, who are, who are my safe people who I can talk with about this kind of stuff? Right. Who do I feel, who do I feel most secure with, who I can be vulnerable with? So, so we process it with God. We process it in community with others. Any, anything else that's real practical and tangible? Absolutely. You know, we're, we are memorial builders. And so for some people, it's enough for them to build memorials um, in, in, a, in a kind of a, a mental sense or in, a, in telling the story. Other pe- for other people, um, building physical memorials can really help. So, of course, you can see that at a, at a broader cultural level, people build, you know, create murals or, or put statues up or any, anything like that to memorialize a significant loss. But, of course, at a personal level, that can be very powerful or a group of people working together who've experienced a, a kind of a, a, a loss together can be can be quite powerful and healing for them. That's great. Here's another thing that that is. Um, maybe not an obvious thing when we, when we feel heartbroken for some of us, the temptation is to hold ourselves still to sit or to lie down or something like that. Actually motion really helps. So, so if you think about the word motion and emotion, they're related to each other. So, so for many people, actually physical movement helps them to mobilize in their bodies um, the stuff that are feeling. So I don't know if you're like this, but when I when I feel stuck in some way, whether I'm working on a project or working over something emotionally, sometimes just going and walking. Yeah, my body. I, I realize stuff that I wouldn't otherwise realize or think about. Part of the holistic nature of how God made us that that physiologically we begin to get blood flow and oxygen flow and all that, and it doesn't just do something for us in the physical realm, but even in the emotional realm. Exactly. Mm. One, you know, one last thing I wanted to mention is um, simply being present. I, I, I noticed um, yesterday, you know, Easter Sunday, there was great comfort for me in simply being present to, uh, in this case, God's creation unfolding in spring. And I, I, it was a little cool, but not too bad. So I took, I took my shoes off and I was walking in the grass and Midwestern grass, spring grass is really nice and soft, but the, the, the experience, the tactile experience, the, the grounding that that offered me, the appreciation of the, the wonder and beauty of creation as it emerges, you know, after winter, uh, I think that's also really helpful during times of, um, you know, when people are engaged in the process of mourning. Mm. That's good. It's all such good stuff. I think your I think you said it was your grandmother. I you know, don't cry, don't cry, it'll make you sick. I think what you're telling us is do cry, do cry, it'll make you not it'll, it'll help you not to be sick. <laughs> it'll make you well. It'll make yes. you well. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bob, as we kind of bring this in for a landing, what would be your your one takeaway? I know that that's probably a loaded question, but what would be your one takeaway that you'd want to leave for our listeners? If they couldn't remember anything else that you said, what would be the one thing you'd want them to grab hold of? Yeah, I was thinking about this and 
I, I would say if there's one thing to take away, it would be to put a bigger frame around what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And what I specifically mean is, you know, today is the second day after Easter. It's, it's the day after the first day of the birth of God's new creation mm-hmm. that we celebrated. Jesus' death was paschal and not terminal. His death, death preceded new life. And this, in the end, this is the Christian hope that we at some level recognize that the the world um, post-COVID-19 is kind of strange and different. And, And while we feel real loss, there's also a different kind of pain, or if I could say it in, in a Pauline kind of way, a different kind of groaning happening in us. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I want to encourage, if there's one thing to take away, um, recognize that whatever the, this low-level stuff going on inside you that, that could express itself in a groan is in part of groaning with the Spirit in creation's labor for that which is coming. I say yes and amen to that. Mm. Yes. Amen. Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough for being willing to be on, on the podcast with us today. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, as we, as we conclude, I'm wondering if you would be willing to pray a prayer of blessing and, and just in a prayer of impartation that God would, would gift our listeners with a, a bit of the, the mantle that he's given you. Absolutely. And uh, I'm going to borrow from my, my faith tradition, which uh, as in my adult life has been as a part of the Anglican church. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm going to pray a prayer um, that comes from that tradition, I think sums up what, we, what we've been talking about. So let's pray together. Gracious God, surround us and all who mourn this day with your continuing compassion Do not let grief overwhelm your children or turn them against you. When grief seems never ending, take them one step at a time along your road of death and resurrection in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, listeners, thanks again for tuning in. That does it for this episode of Resiliency. We're so grateful to each of you for listening. And we'd like to hear from you on how we're doing. You can follow us on Instagram at Resiliency Podcast. And you can click on the link in the bio and leave us a voice message that we might even put into the show. And so for now, I'm Silas West. And thank you for listening to Resiliency. Resiliency.